Thank you all for being here tonight. Um, I I am like more nervous than I've been in a very long time to speak in front of all of you. Uh, I, you know, I do this almost every week. So like it got to the point where it wasn't scary at all. And now I'm like, I don't know, my heart's beating really fast. I feel like this is the first time I've done this. And in part, that's because um, I wasn't going to tell any of you this, but because I'm so nervous, I feel like I have to get it out of there. Otherwise, it's just going to be rambling around in my head. I'm teaching with like almost no notes, which is not ever what I do. I usually write out like exactly what I'm going to say. And like, I just basically read the whole time, which is fine. But I'm trying to do not that <laughs> anymore. Um, and so uh, this is like the least I've ever taught with before. And I feel like a little kid who lost his blankie. Um, and I just want it back. So if at some point in tonight, I just, you know, stare blankly. It's because I completely forgot what I was supposed to say. And I just, you know, that's fine. You can just cheer at that point if you want to. Or boo. That works too. Anything to snap me out of it. But um, yeah, I appreciate your grace in advance because uh, who knows. Uh, okay. So tonight we're talking about uh, these two really interesting stories in the book of John. Uh, but before we get into them, I just want to kind of talk about like have you ever asked God for a sign? I'm sure you probably have. It's a pretty common thing. Uh, the last time I remember asking God, like, please show me a sign of what I'm supposed to do, uh, was uh, three or four weeks ago. I also haven't talked about this very much. My dad uh, got COVID, got a really bad case of COVID pneumonia. Um, he's actually still in the ICU, but he's doing a lot better. Um, uh, Four weeks ago or so, I was on a text thread with my siblings about like what's happening with dad. And I have three brothers and a sister. So that's a lot of people to be in a text thread about something like bad happening. It was very hard to sort through. But anyway, we found out that my dad was going to have to be ventilated um, like a Friday evening. And we were all kind of like, what does this mean? Like, do we need to like head to the hospital and just be there? Because the worst is about to happen? Or does this mean like we're just going to be in holding pattern for a long time? And I don't remember the last time that I have just completely like froze like that before. I just did not know what to do in that moment. Um, I didn't know like, like all of my siblings were like weighing the pros and cons. Like we don't want to overwhelm my mom, but we don't want to abandon my mom. And she's the only one at the hospital. And so I remember just being like, God, would you please just help me? Like, Give me a sign of exactly what I'm supposed to do right now because I cannot figure it out. My brain is just overloaded. And I think that's, that's really common, especially for big things that happen in our lives. Like, God, give me a sign if, if I'm supposed to marry this person or if I'm supposed to not marry this person. If, I'm, if we're supposed to start a family or, or stop trying to start a family or, or should we adopt? God, give us a sign if we should take this job or if we should move big things that happen in our lives, we often are looking for some external sign to show us what the next step forward is. This is true of people who aren't Christians too. I was talking to someone three or four weeks ago who said that they were just waiting for the universe to show them a sign. I was like, I know exactly what that's like. I don't say that exactly, but um, we all kind of have this sense that we need something else to show us what the next step is. We need a sign. This Gospel of John that we've been working our way through uh, actually centers around seven different signs that Jesus gives that are basically all meant to help 
show a, a different aspect of his heart, to, to reveal a different part of his identity and his mission, and ultimately to point us towards the heart of God. But it's interesting because Jesus has this very weird relationship with the signs that he's supposed to be giving or the signs that he does give. He has this very ambivalent relationship where he'll do them, but he kind of like rebukes people <laughs> for wanting them or needing them. I mean, we, we talked about the first sign a couple of weeks ago where he turns water into wine and his mom asked him to do it. And he kind of playfully like pushes back, like, I'm not going to do that. And then he ends up doing it because it's his mom and he's not going to say no to his mom. Uh, but that happens over and over and over again, and he's less nice about it <laughs> to other people than he is with his mom. So what what's going on there? Why does he have this, like, I don't really want to do that, but I'll do that kind of complicated relationship with showing signs from God. What is that about, and what does it mean for us today? To answer that question, we're going to read two different stories, one at the end of chapter 4 of John, and one immediately after that at the beginning of chapter 5. So this first story takes place right after uh, where Shana left off last week. If you remember, uh, Jesus has been talking to the Samaritan woman at this well, talking about really about how uh, he can give her provision unlike anything she's ever known. That the things she thinks she needs aren't what she needs and what she actually needs is Jesus. And she goes away and tells the other people of uh, Samaria or, or her village, and they come back and also hear from Jesus, and then they believe that he is the Messiah, just like she tells them he is. So we're picking up right after that, after Jesus has spent some time with these people, teaching them about him. So this is John 4, verse 43. After the two days he left for Galilee. Now Jesus knew well from experience that a prophet is not respected in the place where he grew up. So when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, but not only because, but only because they were impressed with what he had done in Jerusalem during the Passover feast, not that they really had a clue about who he was or what he was up to. That's really important. So basically everyone in Galilee is excited about Jesus because they heard about what he did at the temple when he cleared out all the people trying to um, sell sacrifices, basically. So they're not actually interested in him or what he's doing or what he's about. They're interested in kind of the fervor around him and what they think it means for them. Keep that in mind. Picking back up. Now he was back in Cana of Galilee, the place where he made the water into wine. Keep that in the back of your heads because this next thing that he does is going to sort of mirror that. Meanwhile, in Capernaum, there was a certain official from the king's court whose son was sick. Pause again. This certain official we know from, from Matthew and Luke, who tell a very similar story here, we know that this is a Roman centurion. So I want you to just notice how in the, in the stories that we've been talking about, Jesus's audience changes a little bit each time. The first while he's talking to just Jewish people, just his people. Last week, he expanded a bit and we, we heard that he was talking to a Samaritan woman. And Samaritans were like, considered by the Jewish people like half-breeds, like half-Jewish, half-Gentile, still not great, but better than a Gentile. Now, Jesus is talking to this guy who is just 100% a Gentile. Not only that, he's part of the invading, uh, conquering force that basically the Jewish people were not supposed to do anything good for. So Jesus is slowly expanding his audience, and this is meant to show us 
that there's no one outside of God's bounds, right? There is no one who Jesus is not going after. Even this Roman who works in the king's court, whose son happens to be sick. Picking back up, when we heard, when he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and asked that he come down and heal his son who is on the brink of death. Jesus puts him off. Unless you people are dazzled by a miracle, you refuse to believe. But the court official wouldn't be put off. Come down, it's life or death for my son. So again, this is one of those times where this guy, who has no business believing who Jesus is, seems to already believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and says, hey, I need your help. My son is dying, can you heal him? And Jesus is like, you people won't believe anything unless I, I show magic tricks. And just like Mary, he, this, this centurion isn't put off by Jesus' sort of like mild rebuke. He just presses him further and says, I don't know really, man, like I'm not asking for you to like dazzle me. I just, my son's dying. Can you help me? Like, I don't care about any of this other stuff. Like my son's dying. That's why I'm here. And Jesus simply replies, go home. Your son lives. The man believed the bare word Jesus spoke and headed home. On his way back, his servants intercepted him and announced, your son lives. He asked them what time he began to get better. They said the fever broke yesterday afternoon at one o'clock. The father knew that this was the very moment Jesus had said, your son lives. Now we translate that time. This is just a little aside for you to know there's some cool things happening here. We translate that time as 1 p.m. in the afternoon. That's because in the story, it actually says the seventh hour. And the way Jewish people kept time at this time in history was 6 a.m. was midnight. It was zero. So the seventh hour was 1 p.m. You can say 1 p.m., but that's, you're missing this whole meaning of seven. So the number seven in, in, early, uh, in, in this time was a symbol of completeness, of wholeness, of holiness. So there is meaning in Jesus healing this man's son at the seventh hour of the day. Sevens actually appear all over through the book of John. Like I said, there's seven signs that Jesus performs. Last week, um, the woman at the well has five husbands and is with a sixth man. And kind of the symbolism there is Jesus is the seventh man that can actually provide for her. Not necessarily in a marriage context, but there is that like metaphor underlying it saying like, you've been trying to get this provision your whole life from all these different people. Here is the complete version of it. Seven. If it's translated as 1 p.m., you completely miss that. Anyway. So Jesus heals him. He finds out that his son was healed the minute Jesus said, your son, is, your son lives. Well, let's finish this up. That settled it. Not only he, but his entire household believed. This was now the second sign Jesus gave after having come from Judea into Galilee. So, let's just recap real quick. This Roman centurion shows up out of nowhere, says, my son is dying, can you help me? Jesus says, what is with you people? <laughs> and he says, I don't know what you're talking about, my son's dying, can you help? Jesus says, yes, he'll live, go back home. At, he finds out that his son was healed the instant Jesus said, you, your son's gonna live. And then he goes back home, and not only does he continue to believe, but now his entire family believes. So his entire family, after having experienced what Jesus promised, believes. This is tying back into our, like, come and see motif. Come and experience this thing and believe. 
It's sort of a reversal of it where Jesus says, like, go and believe. But his entire household believes because of the experience that they've had of Jesus and his power. Does that make sense? Great. Now, we're going to contrast this with the story that follows up immediately after this at the beginning of chapter 5. Let's read that. Soon after, soon after feast came around and Jesus was back in Jerusalem, near the sheep gate in Jerusalem, there was a pool in Hebrew called Bethesda with five alcoves. Hundreds of sick people, blind, crippled, and paralyzed were in these alcoves. One man had been an invalid there for 38 years. When Jesus saw him stretched out by the pool and knew he had, how long he had been there, he said, do you want to get well? The sick man said, sir, when the water is stirred, I don't have anybody to put me in the pool. By the time I get there, someone else is already in. That's a weird answer. Jesus says, hey, do you want to get healed? And he said, no one will put me in the pool. Okay. (laughs) There's a lot going on here that we don't understand. So at this particular place, there's this pool of water and there is this legend or, or like myth or I don't exactly know, but this story that uh, every once in a while, the, the water looks like it stirs. And it, we don't know if this is the wind or like what's going on here, but the story became that that is an angel flying over the water. And after that happens, the first person into the pool after the water stirs gets healed. So this man has been sitting there for 38 years, watching, waiting for the water to look like it's been stirred and then hoping to be the first one in. But since he can't move, he never gets to be the first one in. It's like this weird kind of like who can get healed first game that uh, seems really cruel and strange, but that's what's going on here. So that's why he says, no one will throw me in the pool. Jesus said, get up, take your bedroll, start walking. The man was healed on the spot. He picked up his bedroll and walked off. That day happened to be the Sabbath. The Jews stopped the healed man and said, it's the Sabbath. You can't carry your bedroll around. It's against the rules. Come on. Forget the fact that you haven't walked in 38 years. How dare you pick up your bedroll on today of all days? But he told them, the man who made me well told me to. (laughs) He said, take your bedroll and start walking. So who am I to say no? They asked, who gave you the order to take it up and start walking? But the healed man didn't know, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd. A little later, Jesus found him in the temple and said, you look wonderful. You're well. Don't return to a sinning life or something worse might happen. So the man went back and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. That's why the Jews were out to get Jesus, because he did this kind of thing on the Sabbath. But Jesus defended himself. My father is working straight through, even on the Sabbath. So am I. That really set them off. The Jews were now not only out to expose him, but they were out to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, putting himself on a level with God. Two different healing stories, two very different circumstances, two very different reactions to Jesus. The first is is sort of like couched in this belief that is already there that is only strengthened by the sign that Jesus performs in healing this man's son. And this man goes home and shares that experience with his family, and that's what leads them to believe in Jesus. Then we have the story of this crippled man at the pool 
who who's waiting there for an angel to stir the water and hopefully someone to th- throw him into the water for him to be healed. He's sitting there for 38 years and then this random stranger walks up to him and says, you're healed, get up, walk around, you're good to go. And the, the man doesn't press further into like, why can you do this? Who are you? What's going on here? He doesn't pursue Jesus at all. In fact, he doesn't even get to find out that Jesus is the one doing this until Jesus pursues him a second time and says, hey, I'm glad everything's going well. Keep it up. Do those exercises I told you about or else you're going to get real stiff because after 38 years, that's going to be trouble. And even after Jesus lets him know, like, hey, I'm the one that did this, again, the man doesn't push into it further. He's not trying to build a relationship or, or figure out what's going on or, like, come to any sense of belief. He just goes and tells the Jewish authorities, like, that guy did it. Don't be mad at me. He did it. He did this wonderful thing for me. Get him. It's very different. And so from these two stories, I think we, we have this strange relationship to signs. Signs of God showing up uh, into these two people's lives and kind of what that means for us. On this one hand, we're supposed to sort of be wary of demanding and um, basing our faith off of these sort of signs, whether they're actual miracles or, or just things that show up in uh, the mundane or the mysterious, these signs from God, we're supposed to be a little bit leery of because there's no guarantee that, that these things produce in us any sort of solid faith. And at the same time, we're supposed to kind of keep our eyes out <laughs> to be looking for these, these mysteries, these miracles, these mundane signs that show up in our experiences to remind us of God's presence in our lives and, and for us to, to express gratitude for them and then tell other people about what's going on. So it's like we're, we're supposed to have this sort of ambivalent relationship with this concept. An ambivalence that looks a lot like Jesus's. On the one hand, Jesus doesn't really like doing signs because he doesn't want people to base their faith on them. He doesn't want people to get distracted by the sign itself instead of what it's supposed to point to, which is the heart of God. And he doesn't want people to miss out on what God is doing which is also the point of the signs. And I think maybe, maybe at the heart of Jesus' ambivalence towards signs is, is wrapped up in our tendency as humans to only be looking for and only, wo- only be willing to see the signs that we want and almost never the signs that we actually need. So for instance, this man is sitting at this pool for 38 years watching for the sign of water stirring. And the Son of God walks up to him and offers him new life. He's so fixated on the sign that he wants to see, he doesn't see the sign that he needs. Or, you know, no one, Jesus' disciples or anyone that came in contact with him, was looking for a sign of a crucified Messiah. But it is the one that, they and we all need it. Because a crucified Messiah is is the sign that points to just how far God is willing to go after us. 
It is a sign that God pursues us not just in our victories and successes, but in our failures and our regrets and our shame. That God pursues us not just through, um, you know, uh, not just in or even mostly through those seasons of light and goodness, but in the deepest, darkest, worst parts of our lives. And so I, I, the, the thing that I'm walking away from this strange ambivalence that we're supposed to hold towards signs is still being honest with God about, show me a sign about this. Like, this decision is too big for me. I need you to show up in my life. Still being looking for those signs of God's presence in my life, the big and the small. But I, I'm committed to just this tiny shift in perspective that uh, Lent is coming up, and I'm I'm going to be committed to try this throughout Lent and just change my prayers a little bit to be, God, give me the sign that I need, that I don't want, and I'm not looking for. I think there's a whole lot that we can walk away from these two stories tonight, but that's all that I wanted to talk about this week. It's just how can we (laughs) see the signs that we want or see the sign that we need rather than being fixated on the signs that we want. And I really honestly don't know how to do that beyond just praying, God, please don't let me miss the thing that I need in my life. The thing that pushes me further into love for you and love for others. Which again is what Jesus says, the the point of these signs in our lives is to point us towards God, to point us towards the heart of God, to push us further into love for him and love for others. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that um, as we continue to navigate uh, the complications and complexities of life, of reality, the moments of joy and the moments of heartache, Uh, the victories and the intense suffering that seem to just come with existence. God, I pray that we would remember that the clearest and most vivid picture of who you are and your love for us is captured in the image of a broken, crucified, and triumphant Messiah. And that that would push us to see you and, and signs of your presence in our lives through the miraculous and the mundane. And that that would push us to further love you and love others. God, we love you. Amen.